Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face-Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high-energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues. Sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome to Legal Face. A very special edition today. We've got uh, Tony Romanucci from Romanucci and Blandon. He is one of the uh, family attorneys for George Floyd. Uh, Tony, welcome back to Legal Face. If you've been on the show before, we're very privileged to have you back. Thank you for having me again. I really appreciate the opportunity. You've been on the show plenty of times to talk about some prominent personal injury um, and civil rights cases you've had. Uh, of course, probably not uh, any as big as this one. Many are calling this the trial of the century. Uh, we know you're very busy. You're all over um, media talking about your client's um, case, uh, the civil case, and also the impact of the criminal case on them. So let's talk about first, and by the way, we should mention that your partner, Ben Crump, uh, is also representing the, the Floyd family. Um, we are looking today at day three. What are your takeaways from the first couple of days in the civil case, uh, especially with regards to the decision by the state to go with some non-experts to begin uh, the case in chief? Well, I, I I think the prosecution's case so far has been going in very well. It's been going in smoothly, and it has been an, 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 an unorthodox approach as to the order of witnesses. But when you look at the witnesses that they've called, they've had a, a very unique, rare opportunity here. They've called, you know, what we call two lay witnesses who really are able to offer almost as close as you can get to expert testimony. Um, it's been fascinating to watch Donald Williams give testimony as, a, as an MMA artist, an MMA specialist, talking about the type of chokeholds, the type of takedowns, what they can do to somebody. And then you bookend yesterday with a, a firefighter who has um, obviously great knowledge in, in CPR and how to revive people and what someone who looks like who's in respiratory distress. Rich, you know what the ABCs are. When, when you tell a paramedic, tell me what the ABCs are, they're going to say airway, breathing, and circulation. That's what she was talking about, which is as close to medical causation testimony as you can get. So it was, it was, it's a great strategy. It's brilliant. The jury probably doesn't know that strategy, but they're being taught very early, even before the medical witnesses go on, of what's really happening to George as he's laying on the ground, as opposed to saying, well, tell me what you saw. I'm so and, glad you... Yeah, Tony, I'm so glad you pointed that out because I'm not hearing that kind of analysis, honestly, on m most of the major networks. And as a legal podcast, we're really fascinated with, you know, the mechanics of a trial. And, you know, what you said is so, so important and so interesting that, right, like you said, usually you would get in, you know, EMT, first responder testimony through an expert, right? And yeah. that expert carries the weight and burden of being, you know, presumptively 
biased in favor of who hired them, right? You've hired thousands of experts in your life, presented them to juries all the time. And a good opposing counsel will always say, well, of course, their EMT expert's going to say that because they hired them, right? And it's, you know, through cross-examination, you bring out their bias. Same thing with an MMA expert, right? Uh, you would presume the state would bring in an expert to, to discuss the chokehold. But it's so brilliant, as you pointed out, that the jury is hearing from people who happen to be on the scene. What are the odds that two of the, you know, six or seven people who are lay witnesses are a, you know, MMA expert and a pretty good, you know, fighter by all accounts, pretty good record, and a really honest, uh, you know, firefighter, female firefighter. So it's incredibly uh, interesting to see how the order is uh, going forward and how well these people are doing. I think there's another point I want to make around that because you brought up about the bystanders, right? I mean, it almost seems it's beyond coincidence that you would have these type of people in that small audience. You saw about maybe six to eight people there. But I think the defense lawyer's words, if handled appropriately, could come back to haunt him. He keeps talking about, especially in his opening statement, about the common sense and the reasonableness. Well, if, if anybody looks at that video, they're going to use their common sense and say, let me see, kneeling on a neck for now that we know nine minutes and 29 seconds, kneeling on someone's neck, that doesn't sound right. right? And then reasonableness. You had all of these bystanders. And now we know that there were four people who called the police on the police. So common sense video, reasonableness, you have four people who are calling 911 to say the police are killing someone. That's reasonableness. So I I think his words are going to come back to haunt him. I, I, I just... I don't know how the prosecution is going to use it, but I certainly know one tactic, and that would be it. I think you're right. I think the defense tactic should have been and should be, you know, a more uh, expert type of analysis and more precise analysis that while it looks on the video like this is a clear case of second degree murder, jurors look beyond that and listen to the expert testimony and listen to the details of the case. You're right. A reasonable, you know, believe your eye standard is not helping the defense, in my opinion. I want to turn your attention, Tony, to, um, you know, what, what, what your partner said uh, in his press conference, that this case is a referendum on race relations. Are you concerned that by making the jury think of this in the broader scope, that this decision that they're going to have to make in a few weeks is going to impact, you know, American uh, 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 racial relations forever. A, is that putting too much pressure on the jury? And more importantly, do you think you're creating an issue on appeal? Because as you know, as a trial lawyer knows, you can't tell a jury to decide a case based on, you know, societal goals. You have to tell them you're deciding the case based on its merits. So, Rich, I'd like to, if you'll give me 30 seconds, just to paint a picture of Minneapolis, because I just came back from there last night around midnight. And then it'll dovetail very nicely into answering your question. Minneapolis itself, and I'm sure America too, but Minneapolis specifically, I think is a city that's very, very tense right now. Downtown is, by all intents and purposes, vacant. It's boarded up. There's Jersey fencing surrounding the government center. There are snipers on roofs. There are um, SWAT members all over the place walking around in assault rifles. 
They're in heavy gear. Um, there are, uh, looks like National Guard vehicles that are barricading streets to, you know, stop people from coming in, or at least many people at a time. It, it, it's quiet. There, there, there's a certain edge to it. So now when we talk about your issue, uh, about the racial issue, um, I, I think Minnesota is tense because I, I think Minnesota, Minneapolis, they want to do the right thing. I, I get that sense, especially from the local government there, you know, from the mayor's office, from the prosecutors, um, you know, obviously from the city attorneys who we just settled with. They, they want to do the right thing. You're right. It shouldn't be a referendum on race. I think it's impossible to ignore. Just several years ago, you had the killing of a white woman by a black police officer. And you don't hear the same arguments that you heard then as you do now. And so it has become racial. And I think that when Ben Crump, I think you're referring to his recitation of, of, of our forefathers when he talks about liberty, equal liberty for all and justice for all. That's what we're looking for here. Uh, the family, we're all looking for a conviction at the highest level and for a sentence that's commensurate with the execution slash lynching of a man on a street over nine minutes, which was uh, basically reality TV. It was narrated for America to watch. And, and that's where the burden comes in here. That's why this is so real and so tense, because th this wasn't like um, Justine Damon, where, where the officer Noor took out his handgun and shot her and, and she died right there on the scene. This happened over nine minutes of time. And that's why it's so visceral and so real and really uh, hangs so hard for so many black Americans. Tony, that's a really uh, that's a really interesting answer. I appreciate that. Tony, you mentioned the twenty seven million dollars settlement that the family entered into that you and uh, Ben Crump secured for the family of Mr. Floyd. Uh, I got many questions about it. Um, we've covered that on our podcast, on our last podcast. Number one is that's a record setting settlement, I believe, for a case involving police misconduct. Um, and by all accounts, the city entered it fairly willingly. To your point, uh, I think um, the, you know, from, from what I saw, from what we could see in the public, the city was not pushing back too hard on uh, coming to a settlement fairly quickly. My question to you is, do you have any concern uh, that a juror who is listening to the criminal case will be biased, be influenced by the $27 million settlement, thinking that, I guess there's two ways of looking at it. You might be concerned, the family might be concerned that a juror looks at the settlement thinking, well, justice has already been done by this record-setting settlement. The family's being compensated. Why should I have to find uh, Derek Chauvin criminally liable? On the other hand, you could be concerned that they will be influenced that he must be guilty, Chauvin must be guilty, if the city was willing to pay a record-setting amount. So are you concerned with any of those things? I and mean, again, many people criticize the timing of the settlement coming right as jurors were being selected. I know that's a mouthful. Uh, take your time. Yeah. Oh, certainly. I mean, I, I, I disagree that that the timing was, was, was bad timing. You know, if you want to call anything bad timing, you know, the Minneapolis City Council sets its agenda, you know, months in advance. That March 12th meeting 
wasn't a special meeting. That was a regular city council meeting. There were months and months of negotiations, but with respect to the settlement, you know, and, and it, this was not only a money settlement, you know, this is very important. We spent a lot of time, there was a lot of effort in ensuring that there were what are called non-monetary reforms built in. I believe that if, if Minneapolis follows through with all of its promises, which I believe it will, Minneapolis will be one of the best policed cities in this country where people's rights will not be violated by the police when they're arrested or detained. And, and that's an important statement. And, and that's something that I believe Minneapolis wanted to get out, not necessarily before the trial, but it was a statement that they wanted to get out and we support. Now, with respect to the amount of money, yes, it, it is a lot of money, but it's also a statement that black lives are equal, that black lives do matter, and that it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is when it comes to a constitutional violation. You know, the third part of, of your question was, you know, that the, you know, basically the timing of it and could it affect the jury? Judge Cahill, I believe, used his, his exercise and his discretion, extraordinary measures, and went back and, and voir dired those jurors that were already seated. He did a good job of asking them if anyone, if anybody had heard about the settlement and whether it affected them. And what did we find out? I, I believe that at least one, if maybe two jurors, that were already previously seated had been removed. That jury had not been impaneled. There could have been other measures taken. Uh, we would have hated to see a mistrial at that point, even after three or four days. But that could have been a measure he could have exercised. He didn't feel that that jury was tainted. So I don't feel that the timing of the settlement affected that jury. And it should not over time because jurors, as you know, take that job beyond seriously. It is a gift to them that they know that they have somebody's life in their hands and they will do what is necessary to protect Derek Chauvin and give him a trial, his, 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 his Fifth Amendment right. Yeah, I think one important takeaway from this trial, regardless of the outcome, Tony, will be, you know, as litigators, maybe once and for all, we can put aside this sort of cliched notions that you have to find a juror who has not heard or seen about a case, right? I mean, I read a lot about the jurors' questionnaires and their answers. And as you just mentioned, you know, they've all acknowledged that they've seen the video part. Some have seen more, some have seen less. But I think they all reply that they will put aside any preconceived notions of, you know, guilt or innocence and look at the evidence. And I think that's a very important takeaway because, again, we, you know, I think the lay public believes that you have to find jurors who, you know, are in a cave somewhere who have never heard of a case, who have never opened the TV or, or read social media. That's impossible in today's day and age. So, you know, the question isn't whether you are aware of the evidence, it's whether you can put aside any preconceived notions that you've that you've had and adjudicate the case based on its merits. Um, last question, I know you're really busy, I'll let you go, but I want to talk about the, the family, how they're doing, because I know you're, you know, you just got back from Minneapolis, you're closely uh, in touch with them, you know, uh, by the hour. Um, you've had handled lots of these kind of cases uh, in the past and talk to our listeners and our viewers about the impact of a case like this on the family. You know, by all accounts, uh, George Floyd's family is really close um, uh, and they're obviously going through hell. Right. And we all saw the video, uh, a longer video, as you mentioned, that, we, that previously was released. Talk to us about the impact of looking at that video again and reliving uh, the last moments of George Floyd's life the impact on the family. So I, I, Rich, I can't even tell you how many 
hours and days I've spent with the family over the past 10 months. I, it, it's, it's, I can't measure it. And there are still things that I don't know. When we were in the overflow courtroom watching the beginning of the trial, I had just thought that they had all seen the video. They had watched it all the way through. And there are quite a number of family members who are in that overflow courtroom. You know, we, I think they average about 20 per day in support, even though they only get one person in the courtroom. And, and it, it, was, it was surprising to me that once the video started playing, how many of them had to walk out because they had told me, Tony, we had never seen it all the way through. It's just too much. It's too difficult. Um, it's too emotional. And I thought that by this point that they had had been able to watch it. So every day, and, and this is something that I've said recently, and I'll repeat it again. Although we've said that George Floyd was tortured um, for those eight or nine minutes on the ground by Derek Chauvin, his family is tortured every day by his death because they relive those images of him saying, I can't breathe. And, and just think of it. I get chills every time I say it. The, the man was crying for his mama, either because well, we knew he loved his mama. We knew he loved his mom, but either because he knew he was going to her because she's already deceased or because that was a baby's cry for help. That was his last literal gasp for help. And they've heard that and they know that. And they're, and they're a traditional black family. They, they, they live together, the cousins live together, aunts and uncles, they they traditional family. I know that they are tortured and torn every day by this memory that's going to haunt not only them, but I think the world forever. Yeah, very emotional stuff. Um, you know, I can't stop thinking about the young lady who testified yesterday who said that you know, she 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 apologizes to George Floyd every night as she goes to sleep and thinks that, oh. you know, that could have been her father, her uncle. Um, imagine living with that. Uh, that's got to be, you know, incredibly tough for, for a young a young lady. Um, Antonio Romanucci from Romanucci and Blandin, frequent legal face-off guest. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We know you're really busy. Thank you. Please come back and update us on uh, this important case. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rich. Really appreciate it. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, 
Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Coming up next here on Legal Faceoff, it is our pleasure to welcome Evanston Alderman Robin Rue Simmons to discuss Evanston's reparations program, which was just passed by the city council last week. She has been the alderman of Evanston's fifth ward since 2017 and is the chairperson of its reparations committee. She's also a strategist and entrepreneur and most recently is serving as the director of innovation and outreach at Sunshine Enterprises and as chief strategist at Ujima Solutions Group. Alderman, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So as I just mentioned last week, Evanston's city council voted in favor of becoming the first U.S. city to make reparations available to its Black residents to address, to address past discrimination and the lingering impact of slavery. You led the charge on this program. Can you tell us a bit more about the program and how it works? Absolutely. So it was actually in 2019, November to be exact, that we passed our reparation resolution, which um, established and restricted uh, funding from our cannabis sales tax to advance reparation initiative focused on housing, economic development, and educational initiatives, which is broadly, it could be financial education, health education, not necessarily uh, academic and curriculum based. But what we did on Monday was we passed our first initiative to begin to implement and disperse funding from our uh, $10 million growing fund. And um, we are committed to housing. And we got to that place from extensive and robust meetings with community and stakeholders in 2019. So in 2019, we had just a few questions for the stakeholder community. What forms of reparations would we like to see here in Evanston? How might we fund it? And who should qualify? And so the consensus of that information, also uh, what's in our purview as a city government, uh, we began to move forward with housing as our first initiative, and we will disperse $25,000 direct benefits to Black eligible residents in Evanston um, for either home purchase, home improvements of any type, whether it's deferred maintenance or uh, cosmetic, as well as if you just want to pay down your mortgage. So $25,000 will immediately build well uh, for Black families that are eligible. Eligibility are residents between that were here between 1919 and 1969 and their direct descendants. Alderman, obviously this discussion about reparations has been going on um, in some degree or another across the country for many years. Why Evanston in particular and why now? And especially the latter question, especially in light of what we have seen um, since about a year ago when George Floyd was killed on the streets of Minneapolis. And subsequently we saw protests around the country. We saw the Black Lives uh, matter movement, um, and we also are watching right now as we speak the trial of Derek Chauvin in the killing of uh, George Floyd. So speak to us about why Evanston and, and particularly about the timing. So why Evanston? Because it's what we are, we're known for leading progressive 
uh, movements. We were among the first in the country to commit to affordable housing, to desegregating schools. We have a, a very strong environmental uh, commitment through our CART program at the city of Evanston. Um, and then why Evanston? Because we have a $46,000 household income divide between uh, Black Evanston and our white friends and neighbors. We have a 13-year life expectancy difference. We have an achievement gap and an opportunity divide and so on. Uh, and not that that's unique to Evanston. That's consistent with this nation's uh, disparities and disparate conditions in the Black community. But why now? Uh, because it's time. It's overdue. We have attempted every form of diversity and inclusion and equity initiatives. And in our case, it's only sustaining our racial divide and our uh, wealth gap. Sorry about that. And we, we, um, are, we are making our first steps, a tangible step that must be recognized as a tangible and measurable step, but it is the first step. We're in our infancy stages and um, the, the, the public lynching that we all experience of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 only um, further cemented the commitment from our community, our allies, our partners in building and strengthening the work um, for reparations that we started in, in actually in 2002 with an initial resolution for reparations that supported HR 40. So our city is in support of HR 40. And in 2019, what I led along with the support of most of my council members is uh, passing a funded action plan to actually implement and, and, and move for repair that we could later measure. We're moving beyond apology and ceremony and doing something. So Alderman Cicely Fleming was the lone vote against this program, even though she has gone on record to say that she is supportive of reparations. There are also groups within Evanston, for example, Evanston rejects racist reparations that are also objecting to the program. Can you tell us a little bit about what their specific objections are and whether you think that this program may ultimately be challenged in court? Um, so first to Audubon Fleming, uh, we were really surprised to hear her objection. Um, we had heard it when she sent it along before our meeting to the media. So the media had given us a heads up. We hadn't heard from Audubon Fleming since 2019 when she resigned from the committee. And her last uh, recommendations were exactly what we're doing, housing grants. Um, so we were surprised with her response and um, disengagement and then later to have a no vote. Um, in terms of the group that uh, rejects racist reparations, the opposition uh, argument has changed throughout their process um, of the last few weeks of them mobilizing. But it seems that they are standing on cash benefit or cash payment as the only form of reparation um, that is appropriate. And there are many forms of reparations. Um, and this is a direct benefit. It is, in fact, reparations because it is targeted, is set aside for an injured community that had experienced egregious uh, conditions and policy actions against a community who happened to be the Black community. Is it enough? Absolutely not. This housing initiative uh, benefit absolutely is not enough. It is not uh, considered full repair. It is reparations and it is our first step towards full repair, which we understand will take time. It'll take more funding and it'll also take Congress passing H.R. 40 for 
our residents to experience full repair. But it's also important to note that the city of Evanston alone is not responsible for the disparate conditions. Uh, accomplices include our local banks, our local institutions, educational uh, institutions, as well as other organizations and family foundations in town. So it's going to take action. Uh, we need to you know, move together in action and not in uh, grievances and complaints, um, knowing that all forms of reparation are appropriate. They're overdue. They are just. And we're moving forward with this first action based on community feedback. I'll say that we're excited to see that new members of the community have joined the conversations two years later, and there's still a place at the table for them and an invitation for them to actually help us craft what's next for us in Evanston. Representing the good people of the fifth ward of the city of Evanston, that is Alderman Robin Rue Simmons. Thank you so much for joining us on this very important topic on Legal Face Off, and please come back and update us as this uh, movement progresses. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Tina, great guest today. We're going to continue with uh, Ben Geffen. Ben is staff attorney for the Public Interest Law Center, here to talk about a very important issue following the recent shootings in Boulder. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So, Turning back to the Parkland shootings, uh, you know, a few years ago where 17 people were killed, the Boulder, Colorado City Council actually approved banning assault-type weapons and reducing the allowed capacity for ammunition magazines. The ordinance was quickly challenged and overturned when a district court judge uh, found that Colorado's local law, or, 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 or challenged this local law, saying that it uh, overstepped its bounds um, they cited to a 2003 Colorado law restricting municipal power over firearm regulations. So we're talking today about preemption. Could you explain to our listeners and our viewers first what the concept of preemption means? Yeah, absolutely. So preemption is when a state law limits what local governments have the power to independently regulate. And uh, the example you gave about the Colorado law is uh, a law that restricts local regulation of firearms or ammunition. Um, I believe 46 states currently have some sort of firearm preemption law. So in almost every state, uh, there is a law in the books that makes it difficult or often impossible for local governments to pass any gun regulations that go beyond what state law requires. So, Ben, the obvious question in the wake of the Boulder supermarket shooting is the same question we find ourselves asking often when these types of tragedies occur. And that is, if Boulder was allowed to regulate firearms, could this tragedy have been prevented? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's 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 always difficult to say this one specific incident wouldn't have happened if this law had been enforced. Um, so, you know, I don't know if anybody can say that, you know, this particular shooter wouldn't have gotten a gun uh, had the Boulder law been enforced. However, 
there are lots of published studies showing that gun safety laws work in the aggregate and that um, they put a very meaningful dent in the gun violence problem, uh, whether they are statewide laws or whether they're laws at the local level. Uh, gun safety regulations work at reducing shootings, at reducing gun violence. Uh, and, um, you know, when when state laws don't go far enough, local regulations can play an important role. But, you know, unfortunately, in many states, there is very little that local governments are allowed to do right now. So let's dive into that a little more, because the inherent conflict here, obviously, is, you know, a local government's uh, duty, in fact, to police uh, their constituents and to uh, keep their constituents safe from things like gun violence. That is contrasted with the constitutional right to keep and bear arms without government infringement that is protected by the Second Amendment. So how are courts working out that difference? It seems from the example we gave, they are favoring the federal government, but do you see that trend continuing or changing in the wake of these continued acts of you know, mass shootings? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is that the, there is a Second Amendment right and many state constitutions have similar language. However, it is not an unlimited right. Uh, you know, the Second Amendment itself talks about a well-regulated militia. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly recognized, you know, all, all nine justices have recognized that states do have authority to impose reasonable regulations on the possession, ownership, the transfer, the use of firearms. Uh, so the Second Amendment right is not an absolute right. Um, and then at the state and local level, you know, one of the reasons that it is uh important for local governments to have authority to independently regulate firearms is that lets them tailor the laws to the needs of that community. Uh, so just to give a couple of examples, I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania and in Pittsburgh in 2018, there was the massacre uh, at the Tree of Life synagogue uh, and that was carried out using an assault weapon. Pittsburgh uh, had been stymied in its efforts to enforce an assault weapons ban through local ordinance by Pennsylvania's preemption statute. And now they are engaged in a court fight uh, trying to revive their right to regulate assault weapons uh, to address situations um, like this event that still is uh, you know, very traumatizing to the community in Pittsburgh. In other parts of Pennsylvania, uh, the, the biggest firearm issue is suicides. Uh, and uh, a lot of communities uh, would like to have the authority uh, for example, to pass what are called extreme risk protection laws, uh, which allow family members uh, or friends or associates of uh, somebody who um, may be expressing suicidal thoughts to get a court order that temporarily restricts that person from buying a firearm or, or requires them to temporarily hand in a firearm that they already own. So, you know, different communities face different gun violence problems and uh, preemption laws unfortunately, handcuff local communities that are trying to tailor regulations to their local needs. So what do you see uh, the role of the Biden administration in all of this? I mean, Biden caught a lot of flack in the wake of this shooting for not seeming to have been prioritizing this issue when he did his first address right after the shooting happened. Where do you see the Senate and the Biden administration fitting into all of this? Yeah, so there's a lot the federal government could do um, that that it, it, it has done in the past even. Um, you know, there, there are federal laws that used to be on the books that have expired about things like assault weapons uh, that uh, the, the federal government could revive. Um, another thing that could happen at the federal level is 
for a very long time, it's been difficult or impossible for uh, researchers, public health experts, and other people who want to study gun violence to get federal grant money. Um, I think that um, a lot of the, you know, the, the NRA and other lobbyists for the gun industry have uh, preferred to take a bury the heads in the sand approach, um, you know, closing their eyes to all the evidence that's out there about how effective gun regulations can be. So better federal support for researchers who are studying gun violence and potential solutions to gun violence, I think will help reveal better which types of regulations are the most effective. And that's very important for state and local officials as they're trying to develop strategies to address gun violence in their communities. Ultimately, though, this is really a problem that is at the state level. Uh, and um, state legislatures uh, play an important role, both in passing statewide gun regulations and also in unshackling local communities to pass regulations of their own. Uh, so, you know, there, there is stuff that the federal government can do, and I hope it will do so. Um, but ultimately, it's really uh, state legislatures are where the rubber hits the road. Ben Geffen from the Public Interest Law Center. They can be found at pubintlaw.org. Thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Tina, our favorite part of the show. We had some great guests uh, today, by the way. Uh, Shout out to uh, Gabrielle and Emily to uh, book those amazing guests. The legal grab bag. We've got uh, some excellent guests today, Tina. The first one is a return guest on Legal Face, first first time in the grab bag. Professor Gil Troy is a distinguished scholar in North American history at a little school, Tina, you may have heard of, called McGill University. (laughs) It's tiny. I've never heard of it before. (laughs) Professor, welcome back to Legal Face-Off. Great to be with you and great to be with a former student. Absolutely. Uh, Believe it or not, I am a former student of Professor Troy. He was really impactful on me. I was a student of American history, even as a Canadian uh, person growing up, and I loved American history. And Professor Troy's class at McGill, I think it was my second year. This would have been, you know, many years ago. I don't want to date myself, but really impactful. And since then, he's got on to, you know, fortune as a world-renowned expert on uh, American history, North American history, um, been on all sorts of shows, uh, very prominently on CNN's series, what, 90s, the 2000s, the 80s, right? All of the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I decided to do them out of order for some reason. Uh, 
Just you know, I'm a historian. I have to put it in chronological order. It's a, you know, absolutely. It's also, the OCD part of our profession. Absolutely. Also, a leading Zionist uh, Zionism activist, and in that regard, uh, I know one of your prominent colleagues is Alan Dershowitz, who's a favorite of our show. He's been on our show many times. So very happy to have you on, Professor. Thanks for joining us. And then after that build up, yeah, that's going to be hard to match. Toby Soboleski, friend of mine, who again we pointed out has dressed up for the show. He's got a mix up. I thought for sure he'd be wearing tigers, you know, like I am today for the Cubs opener. But Toby is the claims technical director at Strategic Comp, old buddy of mine, Howard Stewart, aficionado, um, expert on all things Detroit and all things Detroit sports, which is a terrible, you know, title for anyone, as we know. <laughs> not, a, not a good time. Absolutely. Welcome to the show, Toby. It's a pleasure. Thank to you. Have. Thanks for having me. Everyone, let's jump right in. We got seven topics. Uh, we are missing our friend. What's his name? We got Joe today. So <laughs> yeah, he's been gone so long, we don't remember his name. <laughs> we will be the ringmasters. But first topic we have to talk about from a legal perspective is the George Floyd trial. The gap. The um, George George Floyd is is not on trial, but of course Derek Chauvin, the police officer uh, involved in the Floyd killing, is on trial. We're watching day four right now. Um, I don't know if all of you are following it. I'm following it pretty closely. I was on WGN earlier today talking to John Williams about how yesterday went. And I want to just, you know, go around the horn and get everyone's perspective on really anything. To me, from a legal perspective, lots of interesting things, right? I mean, you know, it's like fascinating to watch this trial unfold from a purely legal perspective. Again, there's so many other aspects, but legally, Tina, one of the things I'm really interested in is you know, how the prosecution is proceeding. Um, I think it's really interesting that they started off with the lay people experts, not the traditional experts. And if you think about what we heard in the first couple of days, we heard from the MMA guy, right? The bystander who's an MMA, MMA fighter. We also heard from the firefighter, the female firefighter. And you might think, you know, why did they put these people on first? It's really interesting when you think that they were able to get through lay people and, you know, Toby, Toby, Toby deals with, you know, these issues all the time, hires lots of experts. The prosecution was able to get, through lay people, expert testimony in, right, without having to hire experts on chokeholds and hire experts on, you know, emergency services. And also, importantly, without having those experts carry the burden of, well, they're hired experts, they're going to say what the prosecution wants them to say. It just so happens that two lay people who are eyewitnesses or experts in those areas. So that was really interesting. I want to get your take on that. But the second thing that was interesting yesterday to me was, you know, the video, the store surveillance video that we've seen for the first time, and really the first time we heard Chauvin talk, what struck me from those two things was, was two, two main points. First time we've ever heard Chauvin's voice, and Chauvin was really nonchalant. This was after Floyd was already taken away and unfortunately had expired already. And to hear Chauvin talk about this whole episode very nonchalantly, I think is going to, you know, carry a lot of weight to the jury. And then you might ask, why would the prosecution want that videotape to be played this early, showing Floyd, you know, dancing around the store? The clerk said he was high. You also see him passing the $20 bill. You see him resisting arrest. Those are all parts of the defense narrative. Well, the reason the prosecution wants to, to do that is to get ahead of the evidence, Right to take the wind out of the sail of the defense by dealing with that evidence, some of which is arguably harmful to their case, but you want to get ahead of it. Any good litigator will tell you, Tina, as you know, that 
you want to deal with the negative evidence as, as well as the positive evidence. So that's some of what is the many you know interesting legal aspects right now. What are you what are you taking away from the first three or four days, Tina? Well, you know, I'm going to comment. There's a lot there to unpack and a whole lot more. And I'd love to get to our guests to yeah. comment on it also. But to your point about sort of getting in there, the evidence that doesn't help the prosecution, that video, for example, and getting it in early, I think that it was very well orchestrated, putting that in there in the context of this expert testimony, people who were there who are really telling the story from a very compelling perspective. They were there. They were witnesses to it. They've had, we as a society and, and a country and the world have had a year to think about this, to watch various events unfold afterwards. I mean, this has changed the world in many respects. And so to have the evidence in this kind of an environment, a trial environment, be presented this way, I, I think is is very well done because they are getting ahead of the evidence. So that, you know, where does this leave the defense at this point? Like, what are they going to come up with, especially as you say, Rich, that Chauvin was quite nonchalant, which is what I think is consistent. I mean, he was, you know, some people have called him a monster. He killed George Floyd. And to have this sort of nonchalant tenor, I think fits within sort of the story that is being told. Toby, obviously there's a lot to unpack here. We've only got a few a few you know, short minutes here, but from someone who has hired many experts, who deals with lots of lawyers, who hires lots of lawyers, what are your thoughts on the legal strategy so far? Including, by the way, you know, I thought it was a really big mistake by the defense to go with this theory that the police were distracted and intimidated by this, yeah. Mob, yeah. By this growing mob on the sidewalk. Like, we've it's seen... Bad. We've seen what a mob looks like in the Capitol, right? That's a, swing and, that's a swing and a miss, right? I mean, right. Yeah, the, the, and, I, and I have a feeling, you know, as a non-legal expert, the more evidence that continues to come out on this, it's just going to probably snowball into being a, a worse and worse because a lot of us, like they're saying with these videos, they've never been released before, you know, and you're, you're talking about uh, Chauvin saying, you know, well, we had to get this guy under control. Uh, he's laying on the ground on his stomach with his hands behind him. I mean, I mean, I, I, granted, as a five foot eight, hundred and eighty pound guy staring up at a six foot two or three, two hundred and thirty pound guy, yeah, you know, he's, there's a sizable difference there. But I don't think that this guy was thrashing around wildly. I mean, they, this is a this is a an insane mountain to climb for for the defense. I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds. But absolutely, Professor, you're a of course scholar in North American history. Many are calling this you know, the, the latest trial of the century. Put this in bigger perspective, if you can, and talk to us about how you think this case, however it's decided, will sort of fall in line. I know, you know, fall in line with other cases like this and just generally what we're looking at here, you know, in the current state of American American society. Well, first of all, let me say that, you know, watching the, the bystanders, first of all, they're inspiring, right? They stood up yeah. to the police and it's devastating that the police... Their job is to protect the public. And when the public said, hey, wait a minute, stop. I'm a firefighter. Hey, wait a minute, stop. I'm a martial arts expert. They didn't listen. And that that just adds to the trauma. Look, what we're talking about really is the intense trauma of the year. I mean, one of the strange things about this time is that we're, you know, the United States and the whole world is reeling from COVID, reeling from this plague. And at the same time, we were forced to reckon with a plague of racism. And you're absolutely right. This will be, you know, 
we, we overuse the word historic. We overuse the word unprecedented. I mean, during Donald Trump's presidency, everybody was unprecedented, unprecedented, unprecedented. But this truly was an unprecedented moment. And this really is one of those moments that when an American historian sits down and says, and says how do I tell the story of America in the 21st century? If you skip over George Floyd, if you only tell uh, America 2020, 2021 about COVID, you will have committed academic malpractice. And so it, it and it, what it's done is really uh, triggered also this whole racial reckoning. And so when we watch this moment, we're not only watching this particular trial where a man's life and a man's freedom is at stake, but we're also, you know, swimming in that whole sea of American history, looking at all the racial pain, looking at all the racial injustice, looking at all the trauma, but also looking at the heroes, looking at those people who stood up and said, hey, no, stop looking at those people who said, hey, no, we're Americans, we do believe in equality. Looking at those people who said, wait a minute, America isn't just black and white, it's red, white, and blue. Yeah, I mean, you're right, they are heroes, and the fact that they recorded it, you know, really is incredibly powerful, and the restraint they showed. I mean, the MMA guy, you know, especially, you know, we heard from the first, first day, obviously could have, you know, stepped in, and I'm sure he, I mean, he said he regrets, they all say they regret not right. stepping in, but... You know, they, they are real heroes. So moving on to another story that falls in line with American history, uh, Tina, um, in the recent days, we've seen two new lawsuits emerge, one that was uh, one, one that's a new one and one that will continue that now that Trump is out of office, the courts have ruled that he can be sued. Talk to us more about these two, two new lawsuits. Sure. So the first one, there's a lot to unpack here. So this summary is not going to do it justice. But with regard to the insurrection of the Capitol on January 6th, there are two police officers who a few days ago filed suit against uh, former President Trump, um, James Blassingame and Sidney Hemby, who sued him for um, injuries that they've sustained, as well as for emotional distress. They were both on site at the Capitol. Hemby claims that he was crushed against the doors and suffered various injuries, including cuts and abrasions, whereas Blassingham claims that he suffered injuries to the back of his head and his spine because he was um, thrown up against a pole um, and he sustained a, a pretty a series of harsh blows as a result. And he also claims that he was repeatedly called the N-word. Um, his particular um, allegations include claiming emotional distress, that he's haunted by the memory of what occurred on the 6th, um, that he also is plagued by survivor's guilt. Um, they retribute what happened on the 6th to the tweet that President Trump had um, tweeted out back in December where he claimed that things were going to get pretty rowdy um, come January 6th. And so um, there's that suit going on. It's going to be interesting to see what unfolds with that. The other suit that Rich was referring to is the suit that Summer Verbo Zervos, who actually appeared on The Apprentice about 12 years ago, she filed suit back in 2017, claiming that former President Trump defamed her by claiming that she lied when she was um, alleging that he had sexually assaulted her and had groped her and had kissed her 
while she was on The Apprentice. So both the lower court as well as the appeals court had said that this case should go on. Um, President Trump's team appealed, but the court didn't have a chance to hear it until after the president was out of office. And so last week, it was the ruling came down that the uh, that the suit is going to proceed. So it's going to be interesting because this is against the backdrop, as we've discussed many times on this show. Um, while the president was in office, a lot of people anticipating he was going to get into a whole heap of legal trouble. Um, I think this is just the you know scratching the surface. He's got his issues with New York, and I think it's just going to continue. There are at least ten women who have accused him of some some type of sexual assault, and I think that we're just going to continue to see these suits, Rich. Yeah, Professor, <laughs> Professor Troy, this is obviously right up your alley as a presidential historian. So, two two questions here, really quick. First one. Um, what responsibility does President Trump bear criminally in or criminally and civilly? I mean, this is a civil action, but you know, on 60 Minutes last week, I don't know if you saw the federal prosecutor who's leading the uh, charge against the various people involved in the insurrection said point blank, I think you have to look, we are actively looking at Trump in our criminal investigation. So to what degree do you think he holds responsibility in the insurrection? I personally think he should be charged with murder, flat out. You know, I think it's I think it's a clear case uh, in the in the murder of the police officer. Number two, now that he's out of office, it's no holds barred, right? I mean, these suits will continue. The civil suit by by the various women uh, is that appropriate in your opinion? So, talk to us about these two these two different lawsuits. So, I'm going to make trouble here. I think that uh, Donald Trump's behavior was absolutely reprehensible when it came to disrespecting the democratic process. Uh, I actually start my frustration with him. I mean, on, on this issue, uh, not on other issues, but on this issue during the first debate when he was asked as president of the United States, would he respect the outcome? And he said no. Now, if during the four years that he was president, he really felt the electoral, electoral system was that broken, he should have tried to fix it. And that to me, and, and as a president, your job is to preserve and protect the Constitution of the United States. That's including legitimacy of the United States. And he he set he set himself up as in opposition to that. Nevertheless, when it comes to the speech that he gave uh, on January 6th, and when it comes to, in general, the role of a president and the role of any American in speaking freely, I'm very nervous with the criminalization um, and the attempt to accuse him of murder and the attempt to make him responsible. Because, first of all, we could take a whole stack of um, members of Congress who gave very inflammatory speaks, speeches in response to the George Floyd murder and stack them up. And on that day, Donald Trump did say we're going to march peacefully to the Capitol. And so I want us to have a reckoning about what occurred on January 6th. Um, I think we need to, and, and I, I say throw the book at every single one of the people who crossed that red line and entered the Capitol. But I have a very hard time with anyone uh, being accused of incitement because there's a very thin line between incitement and free speech. And I always err on the side of free speech. I don't care if you're from the left or from the right. It's very important in this culture that we we be tolerant even of the uh, you know those who make us crazy and those who we find obnoxious. And the second countercultural thing, I want Joe Biden to pardon Donald Trump. Mm. I want him to pardon him for all crimes that may have occurred as president. But I don't want, and, and, and President Biden wouldn't have the power to do this, I don't want Donald Trump not to be held responsible for any actions he may have uh, occurred civilly. 
And so I'm all in favor of him being forced to reckon with his disgusting behavior toward number to various women, uh, to to his disrespect for the tax laws. Um, get him that way. But again, I don't want to see I don't want to see Donald Trump thrown in jail. And why? I want I wish that Joe Biden would have pardoned him as a healing gesture because we still have tens of millions of Americans who see him as their hero, who see him as a political force. And I want to figure out how do we lower the rhetorical temperature, not raise it. Wow, that's really interesting. Tell me, what are your thoughts on uh, on that? Um, the, going to January 6th, you know, if you if you take his, his Twitter power away, do you really think that that many people would have showed up and, and made this run on the Capitol? And that, I would find that extremely hard to believe. You know, he was fanning the flames of... of using his social media power to, in a sense, organize like a, like a pickup soccer game, mass communication to this crew to meet here and, and, and do what they did. And I certainly think that he's, he's largely responsible for the, the gathering and, and the results of what happened. Uh, you know, the lawsuit with Summer, um, like Tina said, that's probably scratching the surface. I mean, I can only imagine the dominance of news of numerous lawsuits that are going to be coming forward in the next four to six to 12 months um, in, in every arena under the sun uh, with every allegation possible, probably. And, and uh, this is, this is America. Uh, if, if president Biden were to pardon him, that would, that would, that would be extremely interesting. I, I would love to see the reaction from a sociological point of view to see if that would actually promote some sort of calming of, the political temperature, but uh, I think it could just as easily go the opposite way. Uh, but who knows? Uh, certainly interesting idea. All right, moving from, uh, you know, one man who allegedly treated women horribly to another, uh, Tina, the lawsuits continue to stack up against Deshaun Watson, the Houston Texans quarterback, who is now alleged by, um, what, 21 women uh, in all in separate lawsuits to have treated them in a variety of ways, including, you know, some uh, are arguing or are alleging that he spoke to them in an inappropriate way, way down to the spectrum of exposing himself and propositioning women and, you know, inappropriately asking them uh, in the course of physical therapy massages to, you know, do various things with him and to him and, and, and all sorts of uh, sexual misappropriation, you know, misappropriation. So we have seen from uh, another host of women yesterday, um, Deshaun Watson released a statement from 18 women who he alleges over the course of five years treated him. And all of these women are coming out in support of him. Uh, they have in this press release um, said that one of them said, I think they were floored by the allegations and that all of their uh, interactions with Mr. Watson were, were completely appropriate um, so, you know, this is a continuing legal story. Uh, the fact that they are all, all the women are represented by a single attorney is interesting. Um, and, you know, I'm not quite sure what the public reaction is. It's kind of interesting. And we've touched on this countless times, uh, on our program, um, about how these allegations sometimes, you know, ebb and flow. Um, you know, initially in the beginnings of the Me Too movement, I think it was automatic that if there was an allegation, you would believe the uh, accuser. Now, it's sometimes it seems like it's swing, it swung towards, let's give that person due process. We've covered this with Andrew Cuomo. We had Gloria Allred on discussing, who, by the way, since Gloria Allred was on, she has signed up one of the latest Andrew Cuomo accusers. So 
I'm not quite sure where we are. I think we all want to believe accusers. I think we all want to give them their voice, and especially in light of the fact that it often takes years and years for them to come forward, which is understandable. On the other hand, we all believe in due process in this country and that you shouldn't automatically rush to judgment just because there's an accuser. So I don't know where that plays into Deshaun Watson, but the news isn't good for him for sure that, you know, every day we see new lawsuits. Well, and I would just add, I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. I mean, this this guy is very early into his career, and I'm sure that he understands that if this goes on much longer, I mean, qu- query whether his career is torched right now as we hit, sit here and talk today, right? But if this goes on much longer, assuming that his career isn't torched right now, if this goes on much longer, he's not going to have any career left. So, you know, knowing that that is the backdrop against which this is being looked at, I would think that they're going to try to settle this as quickly as possible. Um, I think the fact that there are so many women who have come out and, you know, for, to defend him helps him. But at the end of the day, we've all seen these circumstances. They're very fact specific. And I don't think it's in his best interest for his career or personally for this to go on much longer. We're running short on time, so we're going to only go with Toby on this one. Uh, but really quick, um, there's a lot There's a lot going on here, especially in light of the fact, Toby, that he hasn't been charged criminally. You know, you have to consider that um, as a factor. And also, we all know that the NFL has different standards. The NFL has not completed their investigation yet. And remember, you can be suspended from the NFL for violating their rules, even if it doesn't rise to the level of civil or criminal liability. So really quickly, what are your thoughts on Deshaun Watson's situation? You know, any any athlete, anyone uh, with a large social presence has the the risk with poor behavior of of having this happen, legitimate or and and also uh, not legitimate claims. You know, and and obviously this this needs normal due process, like anything else. I think everyone's quick to rush to judge to de- default the accusers to to believe them first. But you know, this was an interesting move by him to bring forward numerous other professionals by saying that they've never had an incident and he's always act properly and everything else, but we'll see how it plays out. Yep, absolutely. Tina, next story that we're covering is uh, making it easier to become a lawyer. I'm not so sure I love this idea. Uh, You know, I think there's plenty of lawyers as there is, but uh, what's going on with the bar exam? Well, I think you and I are in alignment on this, Rich. So what's going on is we've got a couple of states, including Rhode Island and California, that have already made decisions to lower the passing score um, on the bar exam. And there are a number of other states, including Idaho and Texas and New York and Michigan, just to name a few, that I think the, the jury is still out, so to speak, as to whether or not they're actually going to do this. I think that they're taking their time to work through the pros and cons of lowering the, the, the score, um, the, the passage cutoff. Um, you know, what's really interesting is that this has been done really to increase the diversity. I mean, that's really what the backdrop is for the decisions that have been made by Rhode Island and California is to increase the diversity of the profession. Um, they also claim that there isn't going to be any impact with respect to ethics cases, that apparently there is no relationship, um, at least based on what they've looked at so far, there is no relationship between cutting the passage scores and the number of disciplinary complaints. I do think the other states that haven't made the decision yet are going to look to see if there are other factors or levers that can be um, pulled in terms of increasing diversity in the profession. 
Um, but, you know, I, I, there's been a lot of discussion about this. There are, there's claims that it's COVID related, or at least that that's one of the primary drivers. Um, you know, the last time I checked to your point, Rich, that there are more than enough lawyers in the profession, especially in states like California and New York, where there are reasons why the passage score is higher um, than in other places. So I, I find this to be an interesting development. I'm not sure there are going to be a lot of other states that are going to rush to agree, though. Uh, I've said this before. I don't mind more lawyers as long as they're good lawyers, right? I, I, I think we need. I think there's a dearth of bad lawyers, and we cover these stories all the time on our show. But Professor, what are your thoughts on on this move? I mean, again, I'm I'm all for more lawyers, but they got to be good quality professionals. That there's not nearly enough of. I'm all for diversity, but. Uh... Why don't we also lower the passing rate for driving exam? And why don't we change the COVID test because too many people are testing positive? Um, this is terrifying to me. I want diversity done in a way that improves educational opportunities, that mentors students, that approaches things educationally. And if there's something wrong with the test, change the test. But don't condescend to anybody to minorities and to majorities and say, oh, 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 we have to we have to start monkeying with with the standards. We need to have strong, clear standards and and empower our lawyers. And I'm with you. I don't want I don't want any more uh, third rate lawyers. I want top dog lawyers. I want excellent lawyers. I want effective lawyers, regardless of the color of their skin uh, and and the nature of their gender or or the nature of their, their their creator approach. And it's very, very important that we hold the standards while also improving the education. Yeah, how about we, here's a great idea. Why don't we lower the medical licensing requirement? Exactly. So that the heart surgeon who's about to cut open into my chest may not have made it otherwise. So, and uh, for pilots. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, one thing I'd add is, uh, to your point, Professor, the issues, I mean, I'm diverse. I there's There are very few people who want more diversity than I do. The issue is, as you said, though, there are issues and nuanced analyses that need to be done. Because for example, the reason why big law is having issues with diversity, I think has very little to do with the bar exam and has everything to do with other things, whether it's pipeline initiatives or the lack thereof, or not having proper training and mentoring. I mean, there are so many issues and complexities to the diversity problem in our profession. All right, let's keep rolling my friends because I got a home opener to get to here. The DoorDash prosecutor ran into some problems. I mean, Tina, isn't don't you make enough money? I mean, I know times are tough, but don't you make enough money as a prosecutor in Pennsylvania that you don't have to do a side job as a DoorDash guy? Apparently not. Well, you know, this is a sad story. It seems like every week we have at least one of these where we find ourselves saying, what were they thinking? So in this case, it was the first assistant district attorney in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, who was paid more than $125,000 a year to be the first assistant district attorney, who apparently said due to COVID that he had no choice but to do gigs on the side. And one of them was to work for DoorDash. Um, I think where this whole plan really went off the rails was when he decided to start making deliveries when he was supposed to be working as a DA. So they found out that he was doing this. And instead of firing him, he was suspended and demoted, um, which at the end of the day, I mean, there was a lot of talk about how terrible this was. He made a terrible mistake. Um, His boss made the decision that he was going to give him a second chance. Um, But, you know, I guess desperate times call for desperate measures. And that's sort of what I chalked this up to. It It was a it was a bad 
bad case of judgment that just went way awry. Oh, so you tell me, you mean uh, working as a government employee using taxpayer money for your salary and also delivering cheesesteaks at the same time, that's frowned upon? That must be just a, a Pennsylvania quirk in the law. <laughs> Probably not a good idea. I mean, I, I, this is this was terrible to, to read about. But I mean, you can't do this during work hours. I mean, DoorDash all you want, not on the, the government clock. And, you know, not a good idea. But I mean, a halfway decent resolution though. They didn't fully terminate. You know, I mean, this guy's apologized a ton. I mean, fine. Maybe he'll make more money, Professor. We're a multitasking society, right? We this is not as bad as the uh, the doctor who attended the trial from the operating room, right? <laughs> Um, my question is, did he get the job done? My question is, did it impede on his ability to be effective? I think this is actually a white-collar, blue-collar issue. White-collar workers traditionally controlled their time and just had to produce. Blue-collar workers were forced to, to, to check in, to, you know, to, to be on the clock. And it's very interesting that this government worker is being treated like a blue-collar worker when we often associate them as white-collar workers. So I think we're all rushing to judgment. Um, we all uh, have decided, I mean, obviously, it's such a great punchline, right? Um, government worker, uh, DoorDash delivery guy. But the, the real question to me is, what was the quality of the work? And I'm going to judge his supervisor. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that if the supervisor felt that this guy was worth keeping, maybe even with his distractions, um, he was worth keeping. And maybe one of the days he brought a good delivery to the office and they had a really nice cheesesteak uh, banquet. Are you in Jerusalem, Professor, by the way? I am indeed. You got, you got the DoorDash there? Is it all? I, I imagine it's all falafel. There's an all falafel version in the. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been a you know, big delivery because Jews love to eat. So uh. Exactly. Exactly. By the way, it's our first uh, uh, Israeli. Uh, uh, guests, you know, or, or guests from Israel, I should say. Right. Yeah. All right, Tina, we got another story. Let's keep rolling. Joe Exotic and this other concept <laughs> that I'm still very confused about. We don't have much time, but this whole uh, NFTs, what the hell is an NFT and why is Joe Exotic trying to, trying to get involved? Well, I'll try to make this really quick. Talk like an auctioneer. So Joe Exotic from jail is sending cease and desist letters to Jeff Lowe and his wife, Lauren, who are actually going to go live this afternoon with an auction of NFT, um, which are the non-fungible tokens. They're like digital baseball cards. I don't know if you guys caught that clip with Pete Davidson on Saturday Night Live, where he very cleverly tried to explain what an NFT is. Um, but the bottom line is they are going live with this auction at four. What I find really odd, I mean, this is odder than any of the um, Tiger King stuff we've talked about over the years on this show, is that Jeff Lowe apparently had a stroke like three days ago. And yet, instead of trying to get better, you know, he apparently, they think he drank something and that his drink was laced with something that that induced a stroke. He's more worried about doing this auction at four o'clock of Tiger King non-fungible tokens, which I don't know about you guys. I mean, I know a bit about cryptocurrency and blockchain and so forth. These are not the sorts of things that I would be spending millions of dollars on, but who am I? Leave it to Joe. Leave it to Joe to get involved. Let's uh, let's jump to our last story. That's a really interesting one. But let's move to our last story. Uh, and it's April Fool's Day, my friends. A big day for all of us. A big day in my household. I am a legendary April Fool's prankster. Um, the best one I ever did, Toby and Professor, was I put a pig's head in an Amazon box, like literally a frozen pig's head I got from the butcher, and you know taped it up like it was an Amazon package. Gave it to my daughter. Told her she got a big present and. 
she freaked out. But there's inevitably, anytime there's a holiday, there's some legal aspects and, you know, April Fool's jokes gone wrong. So my favorite one, Tina, well, one of the, one of the first ones is the Hooters manager who decided to celebrate April Fool's Day by offering uh, an employee who sold the most beer a Toyota, right? That would be a great incentive. I've worked before, for incentives before, and that would be an amazing one. End of the day, the manager blindfolded the winning employee, took her outside the, to the parking lot of the Hooters, and unveiled the Toyota. But it wasn't, alas, a car. It was a toy Yoda. It was a toy Yoda doll. <laughs> Understandably, the waitress was upset, and not shockingly, she sued for uh, breach of contract and fraudulent misrepresentation. And guess what? She was awarded enough money to go buy a real Toyota vehicle, which to me was the most shocking part of the whole story. Not surprisingly, you know, given the state of uh, of, uh, of litigation, but that's a good one. Tina, do you have a, a favorite one? I do. It's like brand spanking new from this week, the Volkswagen Volkswagen. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, I, as a trademark lawyer, I always love these sorts of things. And so for all of you who didn't hear about it, it was an announcement that Volkswagen was changing its name to Volkswagen. It was supposed to be done as a joke. It was done two days early. A lot of people were confused. The press picked it up. Then folks said, well, no, it's a joke. And then there was a whole contingent that said, actually, it isn't a joke because Volkswagen is going to be going electric over the next few years. So for a company that's unfortunately had some issues in the past, um, it'll be interesting to see where, where, where this one plays out. But it definitely got a lot of headlines and is among my favorite of all time. Yeah, I mean, just another stupid move by, by Volkswagen. Professor, help me out with the awarding this woman an actual car, and there's another story that was similar where they promised uh, they promised a radio station listener a uh, new Hummer if she won a local radio contest. She showed up to collect her prize and was given a toy replica instead of a real Hummer. She sued, and uh, she got awarded the cost of a new Hummer. Like, what are the emotional damages from that moment when your blindfold comes off or when you show up and you realize it's a toy? I mean, take it to broader society. This is just, you know, uh, an example of how lawsuits are ruining our world. How do you get the cost of a new Toyota because you're emotionally distraught over not getting it? I think it's more emotionally damaging that we've lost our sense of humor because right. there's nothing like humor as a release. There's nothing like the ability to laugh as a way of, of healing ourselves and that the courts fall into this. Um, that the snowflake culture falls into this, the cancel culture, the bullying culture is is really very uh, disturbing. You may recall from American history, because I want to give you a shout out, Rich, as being an excellent uh, American history student at McGill University. Um, I used to tell the story that when Sears Roebuck, and it's also a Chicago story, was first rolling out um, its catalog, uh, it had a, a big um, sale, a sewing machine for a dollar. People couldn't believe it. How could it be? We're going to get a sewing machine for a dollar. And they sent uh, a little needle and thread. And it was a sewing machine. And back in those days when Americans could laugh, it became legend. And I think we need to laugh because that's how you build myths. That's how you build legend. That's how you build a, a feel-good society as opposed to a society where everybody looks at everyone else as, what can I get from you? How can I exploit you? How can I feel bullied by you or bully you? And that's dangerous to me. Yeah, very well said. Toby, last word on the story is there's a couple other ones that you know are seemingly a little more damaging, right? There was the airline employee who was... Um, you know, the subject of a, of a pretty rough prank put in, put in handcuffs. 
Again, I always question how it really results in any net damages. There was another one where uh, dog food was put into someone's dinner as a joke. It was a firefighter. They sued for uh, racial harassment, emotional distress, and they were actually awarded $1.6 million uh, in this lawsuit. So, again, I, to the professor's point, like, you know, it's April Fool's Day. These are pranks. You know, get yeah, but you don't, you don't mess with somebody's food. You know, you can't mess with somebody's food. You keep your hands to yourself. But I mean, this is the same society that's that's paying insane amounts of money for digital NFTs that are exactly essentially worthless. So I mean, this is this is what it is. Like I tell my kids all the time. You know, I sure hope that you guys get your act together <laughs> by the time they get older. All right. Well, in addition to April Fool's, Tina, it is of course opening day. Maybe the most significant opening day ever. You would argue because all last season. There's no fans in the stands. I am about to leave the presence of you fine people and run up to Wrigley Field a little ways from here. Root on the Cubs. There's only 10,000 people in the stands today. feel very fortunate to be there today. Um, I am a Cubs fan, but Professor, you'll be happy to know that, you know, I still have not given up. Oh, look at that. The Expos. I'm a lifelong Expos guy, but unfortunately there's no more team. So let's go around the horn. Tell us your favorite baseball memory, your favorite baseball player, something about baseball uh, Tina, what's your favorite baseball memory of all time? Oh, wow. That's tough. I mean, I grew up watching, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Cubs fan and I grew up with the 84 team. So watching them almost make it, but obviously when they made it in 2016 and won the world series, that was obviously, and for my father, who's been a lifelong Cubs fan, that was the best moment ever. Understandably. Awesome. Toby and the awful history of the Detroit Tigers. So yeah, it's, it's been tough, but I can tell you, uh, I still remember I was probably nine or 10, uh, the first game that I went to at Tiger stadium. And I remember when I walked out of the concourse out to where the seats were, and I could still see how green the grass was the sounds of being at the game, you know, and it's, it's fantastic. And it's great. Like you say, to be able to go back America parks allowing, I think 8,000 people, uh, as soon as it, ends being winter here i look forward to going and taking my kids and just continuing the tradition of who really cares who's playing if the weather's nice and and it's baseball and you know going and enjoy time with the family for sure toby i think i've told you this story but my first ever baseball video game was it was it was a game where it was all just data on the screen and you would punch in the plays and it was the 84 tigers the legendary one of the greatest teams of all time but yeah. that was the team i was obsessed with i mean chet lemon and Alan Trammell and, you know, Lou Whitaker and all those amazing players, legendary team. Professor, yeah. last word, uh, you know, I remember growing up in Montreal, again, diehard Expos fan. One of my earliest memories, tragically, was Rick Monday hitting a home run against the Expos mm -hmm. that put us out of the playoffs. Dodgers went on to win the World Series. The Expos never made the World Series. But you're an American historian. Tell us about your baseball, your greatest baseball memory, and also – Briefly, why baseball continues to hold such a presence in American society. So trigger warning, I'm a Yankee fan. I grew up in New York and, and I'm a little bit older than most of you. Um, uh, in fact, all of you, I, I grew up in New York in the 1970s. And my mother, because my dad worked on Sundays, my mother would take us to bat day for my birthday because I'm a July birthday. And she always felt badly that my friends weren't around. So she would take four of my friends um, on in, in June to Yankee bat day where Everybody was being given, 15,000 people were giving bats. 
um, in the height of the of the deterioration of the South Bronx, and we went there safely, and we came back safely, and that's the magic of baseball. Because when you're in the baseball stadium, there's a sense of camaraderie, there's a sense of community, there's a sense of timelessness. Um, we felt safe there. We felt like we were part of this great American legend, and that's what we need. And and that's why baseball has always been so healing. Because you know, my Israeli friends go, "Oh my goodness, it's so boring. It doesn't have the action of soccer or basketball, but it does." It has the action of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. It has the action of that 68 New York uh, Detroit Tigers team with Al Kaline and Norm Cash. It has the, 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 the poignancy of the Chicago Cubs trying again and again and again and finally winning the World Series. It's all of it. Every time you look at that green grass, every time you watch somebody get up and swing, it's telling a story that's not just a story of America, but it's also a story of humans overcoming their physical weaknesses to make something great. And that's what we really need as a healing moment. And so I wish everybody a happy opening day and um, God bless us all. Well, a great way to end. And my greatest, mem- my worst memory was the Rick Monday home, or my greatest memory <laughs> is commemorated in a brick that I'm going to go see right now. Wow. It's game seven in Cleveland, 11 to 16. As you see, I was there. Uh, amazing, amazing time for be a Cubs fan for, uh, Professor Gil Troy, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Toby Sobolewski, great job today. For Ben Anderson, who does a great job behind the scenes, Gabrielle and Emily, and of course for Joe Brand, who's not here. Tina, happy opening day. Happy April Fools. We'll see you next time on Legal Faceoff. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the politics. It don't get no better than this, nah.